Gracious God, you are a consuming fire who refines us and purges us of everything in us that is resistant to your will and your good purposes for us. Help us now to hear and receive your word so that we might be purged and transformed in your son's name. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning. It's a little brighter up here. I don't know if you noticed. They changed the lights out. It's it's nice. Um, I've been watching a historical fiction show called Vikings, and it's about Vikings, Uh, surprisingly. Vikings, of course, were a very uh, barbaric group of men and women living in the 8th to 11th centuries in Scandinavia who were seeking to uh, further the boundaries of their land by uh, very violent means, by pillaging and plundering uh, other, other territories. But in some of the scenes of Vikings, like in many historical uh, fiction shows that um, give a portrayal of something from the past, there are fishing scenes where um, someone is pictured by a river or stream of some sort with a hand-carved wooden spear and uh, seeking fairly unsuccessfully to catch fish. Um, If you have ever seen how fast a fish is, I'm sure you can imagine uh, what a difficult task it would have been with a hand-carved wooden spear to catch one. I'm sure when uh, little Olaf was told to go fishing for the family dinner, there was always a response of, oh, do I have to? It probably wasn't a popular, uh, it probably wasn't a popular task. Today, however, in our day and age, we have very much superior fishing technology. We have fishing line and fishing poles. We have motorized fishing boats that can take us to the fish. We have GPS technology that can look under the water and tell us where the fish are. We can even stop at a local gas station and get bait on our way out to the lake to go fishing. Today's fishing technology is undoubtedly superior to the fishing technology of days of old. There is a great contrast in the inferior fishing technology of the Vikings and other such people and what we have today. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't know anyone, including myself, who would voluntarily choose to leave modern fishing technology behind and go try to fish with a wood spear. I don't know anybody who would choose the inferior over the superior. Why would any of us do so? That is the question that is being asked in the letter to the Hebrews in which two covenants are being described with colorful imagery. There is a covenant that is old and inferior, and there is a covenant that is new and superior. If you look somewhere a few lines down into the reading, you will notice a very stern injunction, or perhaps it's a warning, that says, the author says to those whom he is addressing, see to it that you do not refuse the one who is speaking. See to it that you do not refuse the one who is speaking. Sounds like something significant is at stake. Something significant is at stake. So what is it that the sign 
the author begins the passage by giving us imagery from the Sinai event. Now, the Sinai event you can read about in Exodus 19, but that is where God gave the law to his people. And God's glory was so powerful and so radiant on this mountain space where he dwelt that there needed to be a mediator who could take the law from God to the people. And as you read in our passage, the people said, don't let the voice speak too much to us because we'll die. And so Moses was chosen as this mediator, and he goes up to the mountain, which is described as something that can be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that not another word be spoken to them. So the author is giving us this very colorful picture to describe something majestic, and that is God's glory. Glory that is like, a, like the sun, which astronauts must not get too close to lest they be extinguished. He says that even an animal would have to be put to death for coming into contact with the holiness of God's presence. Now, thankfully, the author moves on and describes something else and says, you have not come to this, and he describes the old covenant. And then a few verses down, he says, but you have come to this. And he begins to describe in colorful imagery again, what the new covenant entails. The new covenant, he is speaking to Christian brothers and sisters who have been baptized and had put their faith in Jesus Christ. That is who is he addressing, and he is saying, brothers and sisters in Christ, this is what you have come to. You have come to Mount Zion and the city of the living God. Mount Zion was, of course, envisioned by the Jewish people as the place where the new Jerusalem would be, where the King Messiah would reign upon his throne in peace, and his people would have abundance of prosperity, and there would be mercy and love and peace and justice overflowing. So Mount Zion, this is where we've come. This is where we have come in the new covenant. And to innumerable angels in festal gathering, heavenly imagery of angels feasting in festivities, praising the Holy One. And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, that is, all those who have gone before us and set an example of holiness and have gone on to be with the Lord. And to God, to God himself, the judge of all, that's where you are, that's where you have come. And to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, that is, the communion of saints the, the church triumphant that has gone on and passed on and lives in the heavenly realm with the Lord and, and enjoy his glory. That's where we are. And to Jesus. Now notice how Jesus is described. The mediator of a new covenant. Moses was the mediator of the old covenant. Meaning he had to take and receive from God and go between God and the people and give the law to the people so that they would have knowledge of how to live as God's chosen people that would be set apart and would be a light to the rest of the nations. But they could not approach God themselves. In the new covenant, Jesus is the mediator. Jesus, who is God himself, is the mediator, who comes himself and mediates the covenant. And finally, to the sprinkled blood 
that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The blood of Abel called out for vengeance and justice and revenge. But the blood of Jesus calls out for mercy and forgiveness, for God's love to be poured out in all in mercy. And so there's this warning. See to it that you do not refuse the one, Jesus, who is speaking. Don't resist the mediator. So why was this commandment being given? Such a stern warning to these early Christians. This, uh, the, the book of Hebrews was likely written to a small group of believers, probably living and worshiping in Rome, with the possible threat of persecution. But what we know for sure by reading through the entire book of Hebrews, which is just one long sermon about the superiority of Jesus Christ and the covenant which he has made with us, the likely issue at hand was a sort of longing for the inferior The old covenant, the ways of old, whether it was the temple system, the sacrificial ritual system, um, the offices, whatever it was, there was a longing for the old days. And so it was an issue of identity. It was wanting, these people were struggling with wanting to kind of still have their identity with the old and the inferior. And the author says, why would you do that? You have been given the superior Why would you go back to anything else than the superior, which is Jesus himself? Why would you go back to anything else? Why would any of us long for anything inferior? Why would any of us long for anything other than the superior, which has been given to us in Jesus? You see, the text shows us that even from the very earliest days in the Christian church, there was a temptation to hold back, to resist, to not give everything to Jesus, to struggle for an identity that wasn't 100% grounded in Jesus Christ and his covenant. And it's a perpetual temptation, even for Christians today, not just then, but for today. It may not be an old covenant dealing with the Jewish sacrificial system that we are longing for, but perhaps it's that we resist a little from fully giving ourselves to Jesus for other reasons. Maybe because we feel like we want to keep our individual freedom for ourselves, or our pet sins, or our pride, maybe our concern about our identity and what, how we appear to others in the public square as Christians in a day that is very much hostile in many ways to Christian faith. But we hold parts of ourselves back so often in resistance. Why do we resist? Why do we hold on to what is inferior when we have the opportunity to the superior? I have one theory. Perhaps we sometimes think or envision that God is trying to rob us of something that is only ours. Maybe we think of God as trying to manipulate us out of some kind of freedom that is only ours. And so we hold on to it and we say, I can't give you that part of myself, Lord, because it's mine. I cannot give it to you. I cannot give myself fully to you. 
There is a scene in one of the Lord of the Rings movies, majestic movies, of course, based on the books by J.R.R. Tolkien, who was a very faithful Roman Catholic Christian. And so the themes of the movie and the books are very deeply Christian. And there is a very powerful scene that I think perfectly portrays this issue between human resistance to God. Bilbo Baggins, who has been traveling on a voyage with this ring that has great seductive power, great power. And Bilbo has begun to fall under the spell of the ring again, and he is very resistant to parting ways with it. And the ring must be passed on to his nephew Frodo so that the journey can continue. But Bilbo has become very absorbed in this ring. And there's a scene where Gandalf, the great, righteous, majestic, bearded wizard, appears in Bilbo's house, towering him in size. Bilbo and Gandalf, of course, have a wonderful relationship. And Gandalf realizes that Bilbo has begun to be consumed with this ring. And Bilbo is holding it. And Gandalf says, Bilbo, you need to leave the ring behind before you leave. And Bilbo says, no, it's mine, my precious. And Gandalf says, those words have been uttered before, but not by you. And Gandalf continues to confront Bilbo as he seeks to hold on to resist what is the best thing for him. And suddenly, the thunder claps and the lights grow dim. And Gandalf, in all of his glory, exclaims, Bilbo Baggins, do not take me for some conjurer of cheap tricks. I am not trying to rob you. And the lights come back, and Gandalf gently finishes, I'm trying to help you. And Bilbo immediately runs across the room and leaps into Gandalf's loving, fatherly embrace. That, my friends, is a picture of the fatherhood of God who invites us, who indeed commands us to surrender everything, to Jesus in the covenant that he has made with us. You see, this is the great paradox of the Christian faith. Our God is a consuming fire. And in the old covenant, that consuming fire could not be approached. But in the new covenant with Jesus and the cross, that consuming fire is a fire that comes to us and purges us and refines us and cuts us out into the image of Christ and knows what is best for us. And it lovingly embraces us. That is the paradox. Our God is a consuming fire, a consuming fire of fatherly love that wants to burn away everything in our lives that is resistance to his, that is resistant to his good purposes and his good will for us. So why is it that we ever resist fully giving that to him. And we see this in the gospel today as well. God is a God who calls us, calls out to us to come now to him in intimacy. When you look at the wording in the gospel of Luke, it says Jesus was teaching in the synagogue and there was a woman who had been crippled with a disease for 18 years and Jesus saw her and called out to her and said, woman, come over here. That, again, is a picture 
of the God who calls out and calls us to come to him in intimacy and to surrender every part of ourselves to him, holding back nothing. The end of the passage describes a time in the future, and it conti- he continues to press the severity of not longing for the inferior, but grasping the superior and only that. And it paints a picture of a future time when it says, he will again come and shake both the earth and the heavens. And the imagery that is being conveyed is one of a purging, that once again God is going to come and he's going to wipe away everything that is resistant to him and his purposes. Because for the new creation to come and to be perfect and to be holy and for God's presence to be an all in all, every resistance to God has to be wiped away. And so he continues to emphasize the severity. Brothers and sisters, see to it that you do not refuse the one who is speaking. So I want to ask you today, how is Jesus, as the one who is speaking, speaking into your life about any resistance that you have to him? Any resistance. And I encourage you to seek your heart and your life to find that resistance and to ask God to show you if there is any resistance and to ask him to help you surrender it. It is a practice that we ought to do as Christian disciples often. As we approach the altar today to receive the blessed sacrament, to receive a God who comes to us and gives himself to us in the bread and wine, surrender to him any of that resistance. Don't, don't let that ailment keep going on. Let him have anything that needs to be surrendered. Fear, anxiety, sin, whatever it is. Let him have it and receive him with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire who purges us and cleanses us and embraces us with his fatherly love. It is only then, it is only when we fully surrender that we will truly know the joy of Christian discipleship. Amen.